Hi, and welcome back to Apology, a podcast about books and reading. Today's guest is Daniel Arnold, an incredibly prolific photographer who works in the idiom known as street photography. Just in case you don't know what that is, though I'm sure you do, it's what Wikipedia calls, quote, photography conducted for art or inquiry that features unmediated chance encounters and random incidents within public places, end quote. Um, in other words, Daniel walks the streets of New York City almost every day until his feet hurt, taking photos of people going about their business in the world. Now, anybody can take a point-and-shoot camera to Times Square and indiscriminately snap a bunch of pictures, but it requires a certain kind of eye, which I think one is either born with or not, to make those pictures compelling. That plus the kind of hours that Daniel puts in. Um, you know, to be only 42 years old and to have accumulated a body of work like Daniel's is eerily impressive. I can think of a few images of his that I'd already consider classics of the genre, um, images that straddle the line between art and documentary. There aren't as many book recommendations on this episode as there are on some others, but that's not because Daniel's not a reader. He is. It's more that I'm really fascinated by questions around the processes and ethics of street photography. Um, so if you're a street photographer or if you have one in your life, I think this episode will be particularly valuable to you. But really, it has value to anybody who makes art and or cares about art. Daniel was very thoughtful about his work and the intimate relationship that thousands of hours of photographing New York have given him with the city. He's photographed the likes of the New York Times and Vogue, and he recently released a book called Pickpocket, which was put out by Alara Press, the publishing arm of the Safdie Brothers Film Company. It's a dense, beautifully designed thing that I believe is already sold out, so if you see a copy, grab it. Okay? And now here we have Daniel Arnold on the Apology Podcast. So, what are you reading right now? You bastard. <laughs> you, you did warn me. Uh, I am... I mean, it's a complicated answer that who needs to listen to, but I'm such a, a buyer and collector of books, and I'm so bad at reading them. Uh, so I have... I think the most recent stack by my bed that I'll like poke at until I remember that I want to look at the phone is uh, this book that Matt Schnipper sent me called uh, this book called Larry's Party. Larry's Party. Never heard of it. By Carol Shields. It's this very odd book that I think he discovered kind of by accident, like super, super mundane kind of compartmentalized descriptions of everything about Larry. Larry's body and there's a chapter called Larry's penis that I haven't gotten to do and it all ends with Larry's party and nothing really happens it's just like mundane description of the world in this guy <clears throat> so there's that and then I have the most like phony aspirational uh, <laughs> dead souls by Google yeah because I had it on my shelf and I heard that he was a, a prominent Ukrainian and I was like, oh, let's, you know, catch up with the culture a little bit. Yeah. Um, but it's very dense and ancient and I have to like learn a new vocabulary every page, which is cool. It's very dense. It's one of those books that I read. I read way too early because I thought the title was cool. Yeah, it's a great title. Good looking book. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's been it's been going slow. And then the other book uh that I think I'm not supposed to have or read, but this book, It's Me, Eddie, by Edward Limonov. Oh, the, uh, is that the, the Russian journalist? Yeah, I think he turned out to be some kind of awful fascist. I think uh, you're right. Yeah, he was kind of a, he kind of led like a political cult, sort of. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. But before he did that, he was just like a desperate bum in New York. And he writes about it really kind of viscerally and nastily. And uh, so I've been poking at that, too, and enjoying it despite, you know, yeah. it being questionable. Look, our cats are... I know. Mm-hmm. It can, it, the listeners can't see this, but our cats are in parallel positions on our video right now. Um, <laughs> what's your cat's name? Peanut. What's yours? That's Henry. Hi, Henry. <laughs> Do you like um, reading about New York? Uh, I wouldn't go that far, but I mean, it does. It's kind of like an easy in when the rest of my life is spent kind of obsessing over a certain place and you know when someone else is talking about it it's i don't know it's just a shortcut to kind of getting invested yeah yeah it's just, it's kind of like you can react to another person's take on it and and find more nuance to your own take on it yeah and like the locations are familiar you don't have to work as hard to picture things which is yeah. exhausting i was reading a new york book recently and i actually thought of you um it's true it's um it's called the heart of the world it's by nick Cohn. Huh. I don't he wrote, know. He wrote um Saturday Night Fever. Okay. The art the article that Saturday Night Fever was based on. But this book, um, this guy, Nick Cohn, just walks Broadway from Battery Park all the way up to the end and writes about all these characters he meets along the way. That's and cool. it felt like a writing analog kind of to the way that you photograph. Yeah, I should look that up. Because I do I mean I spend uh more time on Broadway than than I should. It's a very convenient vein if you're looking for density and energy. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think your photos say about New York City? Like, do you think you characterize the city in any certain way, like cumulatively? Mm, I think anything objectively valuable and kind of historical and cultural is also incidental. Um. I don't know. Like in my mind, I'm kind of curating uh, a made-up version of the city. But even that's kind of a, a, a looking like a lie looking back. Um, just because I'm in so deep at this point, and it's so automated and so kind of unquestioning that um, it's almost whatever I'm doing is kind of unconscious. Um, so what it says about it without me putting a thought toward it is just like, I don't know, I guess it's this sort of abstract expression of, of my particular fantasy of New York that Mm -hmm. I think everybody walks around with. Like there's how many millions of versions of New York happening simultaneously. Um, and I'm just trying to, you know, without asking too many questions or, or thinking too many thoughts, just kind of let my gut do the work and make this just accumulation of kind of emotional reactions to whatever I run into. Yeah. Just like being available. If you're working in an unquestioning way, then what's the experience like, like to, when you put together the book pickpocket, going back and looking at everything and writing all those annotations. I love the annotation section, by the way. Thank you very much. Yeah. For those who haven't seen the book yet, um, Daniel writes these really personal annotations to each photograph in the back and they're, I mean, it constitutes a book in and of itself, I think. Um, but what's that experience like to go back and have to think about it and when you, when you function in a different way while you're doing it? 
Well, it's interesting to have identified the captions before I start answering because the reality is I barely had anything to do with the edit. Mm. That was, I mean, that book, for one thing, can only exist because of COVID-19. You know, you got like a bunch of super in-demand hotshot people who suddenly can't do their jobs and have all this time and, you know, kind of agree on a common interest in, in my work. Um, and I made them an edit of probably 1500 photos where, I don't know, very permissively where it just felt like our, our kind of New York fantasy worlds intersected. Mm. Uh, you're, you're, but, you're, yours in like, and, and the Safties. Oh yeah, jo- jo- so yeah, the filmmaker, Josh Safty um, was one of the editors of the book. Yeah. And Josh was also kind of like the primary point of contact the you know the, he he had the conversation basically like a creative partner kind of with me yeah i mean there was this kind of there was like a weekly conversation between josh and producers and designers you know like uh terrain in in belgium so this international conversation that i wasn't even part of um but josh and i would talk sporadically so i gave him this giant this giant pile of photos that took me so long to compile and was so kind of self-defeatingly sprawling Mm. that I thought, I mean, I've had a lot of false starts with books and I figured that was going to be the end. Like I'd hand him that and he'd be like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Too much. (laughs) See you never. But he came back three days later with an edit. Um, and you know, I kind of, I looked through it and challenged it where I thought it was off base and he was minimally receptive to that critique. Um, he's like, you know, I see what you mean in a couple of places, but for the most part, I can't stand to lose these. Um, Mm -hmm. and for me, I mean, generally that is a huge relief to me to have it taken out of my hands. Um, just because it's a terrible job. But also given the timing where, you know, we were in prime COVID time yeah, and without even thinking, it just felt like I needed to be outside all the time. And I didn't, as much as like that period did create a window of potential productivity in new directions, for me, it was like, I, I didn't have attention span for anything but looking at the city and like looking for some source of the strange feeling in the air. Um, And so I was sort of relieved of that whole looking back difficulty Mm. um, until it came time to write the captions, which ended up being a really interesting experience because at first glance, the edit really threw me off. Like it's it's scary to have this first. I mean, I've had little books in the past, but nothing as sort of statement feeling as this one. And to have it be a collection of photos that I didn't choose, and that in some cases I would never show, was really, to begin with, an alienating, scary feeling. But then in writing the captions. I kind of not only did I go through and kind of rekindle the emotional relationship with each picture by thinking about its context, but also 
kind of came to this new understanding of the whole process that I felt in the end, like I had, without meaning to, had approached the book the way I would a photograph and, and not a book. It was very true to the process and not true to the tradition of a photo book in that I kind of let, I kind of let the world do the work. You know, I, I, I put the material out there and had, was very lucky to have a, a you know, a very qualified uh, group of people trying to decode my language and, and make a story out of it. Um, but for me, it was more a matter of like getting all the right people in the frame and letting them do whatever they're going to do and just being there to see what happens. In the meantime, while the book was being edited, it was, it was peak COVID time and you were out there making new photos during that time. What was that like? How did it differ from the usual? Um, well, I think more significantly, it, it didn't differ really. I mean, it was one of these moments where, uh, you know, I think kind of a root of what I'm doing at this point is just being unreasonably committed. Like I'm saying, like there's not, there are not a whole lot of questions being asked. It's not like uh, an ambitious project where I'm trying to make a statement. It's just like, well, I guess what I'm saying is that when something like COVID, when something dramatic and and you know obviously demanding of attention happens, instantly all the backlog of meaningless wandering becomes practice for that moment. Where like, I think in the absence of the established ritual, COVID would have happened and I would have been like, oh, I got to go out and make, make the pictures. I've got to go find like the perfect expression of this time. And instead, because I already had something in place and a rhythm and uh, kind of a, an approach established i could i could document that time without the corruption of of like a new effort um and so you know for one thing it was very normal um and then of course you know i think the answer that is more interesting that you're probably looking for is that it, it was like the, uh, this very intimate experience with the city where I had huge swaths of it completely to myself in the middle of a weekday. Um, and, you know, it was the city was visibly suffering and it just felt like I was, you know, at the hospital holding my friend's hand, which is corny as hell. And it, it didn't you know, it wasn't like an overwhelmingly emotional experience necessarily. It was just this, this new kind of intimacy where, you know, I wouldn't necessarily acknowledge the evolved feeling that I have with the city after all this time, like making it, putting all my energy into looking at it. But then when I, we were finally alone together, it was like, oh yeah, we're, you know, we've got a, we got a thing going here. Um, and then, you know, by the time it sort of at least crowd wise had run it, run its course and people started coming back, 
you know, I don't know, not in a competitive or, or entitled way, but I just felt like a kind of closeness with the city that, uh, I think would otherwise be taken for granted or that people kind of imagine that they have from the minute they get here, because it's such a, such an aspirational mm-hmm. fantasy world. Um, and to have stuck out this bad time and not looked away. And even if I get a hard time for it, not cooped up in my apartment, I like, didn't hide from anything. I was uh, out really. I don't think I took a day off until middle of June. Um, where I was really just like super focused, putting all my time and effort into being there. Did you find yourself in the absence of people trying to make work that was more about um, landscape or architecture? Mm, No, I mean, maybe somewhat because there were a lot of superficial changes. Like all of a sudden there were no stores and all the windows had plywood in them. So there was a reason to, you know, make a record of, a peopleless scenario. Um, but I think in a way, I don't know, I hear a lot of complaints from people who, who are in the same kind of line of work as me about, you know, the what's lost by having everybody wear masks. Like you don't see any faces. I don't know. I felt like the absence of people and the absence of faces kind of did the opposite like it it made the people who were left the people who were stuck out there with me more effective as kind of jumping off points for a story you I know can like, see that yeah there's there's almost a weird kind of it's weird that there's there's a vulnerability in wearing a mask yeah totally even if you it you know you don't get to see what the per- person's mouth is doing Right. You'd think you'd think having your face exposed is a more vulnerable position, but it's like sort of acknowledging your own susceptibility to, you know, outside influences and outside problems. For sure. Well, and especially if you think about it, I mean the the I think that the experience of the masks changed so fast and so dramatically that it's easy to forget what those first few weeks were like. Where like the masks were kind of trickling in and I think everybody had one at some point, but it was still kind of embarrassing to wear one. Yeah. Just because it was, I mean, not because of the way it looks or anything, but just because it was, again, an an admission of vulnerability and like accepting that this crazy thing was happening. Um, And so with that in mind, I mean, the first wave of masks, you can't see it now because, you know, the picture is obviously just the split second, but um, I feel like in the beginning they were so loaded because people were just accepting that they really had to wear them. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Like, I, I think of a specific picture when you ask about the the landscapes. There's this woman who has been begging on Fifth Avenue by like, I don't know, Fifth Avenue in the 50s for years and years and years and years and years 
And if you're there paying attention with any regularity, she's kind of this iconic fixture. Uh, for years, she had this giant, like softball sized growth on her face um, and was collecting money to have it removed because it was cancerous. And, you know, finally she did have it removed and it came back. And, you know, it's just been this kind of, you know, free for the taking on the ground saga if you bother to pay attention, if you happen to be there every day. Um, and, you know, fast forward to March and April of 2020. She's still there, but now she's the only person on Fifth Avenue. And so rather than, you know, walking by and thinking for the hundredth time, like, oh, I'm not going to bother her today. Or, you know, you don't need a picture of her because she's such a fixture. Now you can look at her from a block away. Mm. And she's a speck on this giant, empty, depressed landscape with like a bus stop that says, call a loved one. And uh, suddenly, I mean, maybe not to everybody, but because I know her, she becomes this like lightning bolt of of significance in this empty space uh, where I'm able to do more with Fifth Avenue than I could if it was packed full of people. Yeah. Have you ever communicated with her? Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of times. I mean, she doesn't ever remember me, but... We've talked plenty of times. That was my one big regret from that period. Whenever I think about it, it drives me crazy. But I had unbelievable conversations every day with people who didn't have anywhere else to go. Um, and I have no documentation of that. But you do you keep some kind of a journal? Because there's a reference in your annotations in the book to making um, notes in your in your notes app. Do you, do you have a daily writing practice of some kind? I don't. I have a, a very sporadic writing practice where, I don't know, it, it mostly goes, but once in a while comes with, uh, you know, if I'm in a moment where I feel, where things feel kind of like momentous and turned up, like if I'm traveling or if things are going really bad, you know, I'll... I'll it's kind of the same impulse as the photo thing or like, you know, I'll, I'll recognize something that I want to keep. And in those moments I will make notes for myself, but for the most part, uh, the note taking is something that I look back on not doing and kick myself about. Yeah. But you were a writer for what, 10 years, right? Professionally. Yeah. Aside from, you're, I mean, I know you worked at like what Nickelodeon and um, you were doing copywriting mostly, right? Yeah. yeah. Were you writing for yourself too? Yeah, in a way, uh, in, in what started as a very 25 year old Midwest New York transplant way, um, you know, and it was 2005. So I had a blog and uh, I put a lot of of time into that into kind of i guess capitalizing on this phenomenon that eventually became extremely obvious and mainstream but that like the internet had no especially at that time had no real indication of of legitimacy like everything was kind of democratized and so you know i suddenly had all these friends who had projects or you know dreams they were working on or whatever and i could i could write these articles that 
nobody could discern, you know, they look the same as a real review. Right, right. So I started out doing that and that drifted into, you know, once I got comfortable and kind of validated in that practice, I would get more self-indulgent and just like talk about myself and just kind of have a diary. But that was as developed as that as that ever got. It was always kind of secondhand. Did, did you have influences at that time, writers that you were particularly reading when you were mostly a writer or? No, uh, I don't think so. I mean, I guess in a way you, because when I, I mean, there are certain things that I think back on in that era that were so invisibly guided by vice. Oh, right. Okay. Like that, that voice was so commanding and so of the time and place that, you know, there was, uh, I think a persona that I would drift into that was very much not me. Um, but was really helpful because it was audacious and unashamed. And, uh, you know, I was like new and didn't know how, any, know how anything worked. And so I could kind of put on this, uh, tough guy, not tough guy, but like, fuck it kind of yeah. costume um, and navigate the city like that. I know what you mean. It's funny to think of it influencing someone in that way, because the voice that I, what I always say, the voice that we were going for in like the magazines, like authorial sort of tone was a Valley girl who's read Michel Foucault kind of yeah, mix, that mixing the high and the low like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, and also just like, you know, nothing sacred yeah in a way that you know obviously didn't age well and there are things that i did back then that you know i wouldn't take back but i was out on a limb in public in a way that you just can't be anymore yeah yeah if i were to ever reach a certain kind of fame i'm pretty sure i'd be canceled for something i did in vice like 20 years ago yeah What did your um, parents read? What kind of readers were they? And what kind of books did you kind of take from their bookshelves when you were young? Uh, It's funny. I have just recently talked about this with my dad, who has, uh, I think, a similar... I mean, I I got my book hoarding thing from him because we always had, like, stacked bookshelves of all the classics, everything he had to read in college, and like the classics in French, even though he didn't speak French. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I recently asked, asked him, like, have you, do you, did you ever read these books? <laughs> He's like, yeah, some of them. Um, but I think the more kind of meaningful antecedent was that in that, in that context at home as a kid, books were like a collection more than they were a living engaged thing that you interact with. Um, And so, you know, in a similar way to the relationship I had with his records, which were obviously a little bit more accessible because you could just put them on and they did all the work, but you know, I'd like put on Patty Smith horses and like try to figure out if Sir LaRoute 
was supposed to be in French or if it was just on the road. Uh, and I guess I never thought about the significance or like what I would carry with me from that, but it, it was just this appreciation of the classics that there was this like body of accomplishment out there that was worth even having proximity to. What do you remember reading when you first were setting out to read in a self-directed way? Like maybe when you were like middle school, early high school, like what, what was big for you? Um, I was, a, I was a really big reader when I was a kid, which just accentuates the tragedy of, of what things have become. But, uh, I mean, when I was a little kid, I remember like going on a, a class field trip in like fifth grade to the symphony and bringing along my dad's, I think probably first edition of Catcher in the Rye and reading Catcher in the Rye in the symphony and just like rolling my eyes at, oh, what are these people wasting their time with? Meanwhile, obviously not absorbing a shred of Catcher in the Rye. It was just like, get to the end. Um, I mean, there's picks. What else? Homer was big in, in my oh, house fantastic. growing up. That's great. Um, yeah. So I would get like quizzed on on Greek language, on uh, on what the gods did, who was who. Um, that was a big thing. But I mean, the first thing I think of in terms of really self-directed, nobody's looking, reading, I got really into Stephen King. Amen. When I was like, 13 probably i mean the perfect time for stephen king he comes up on this podcast so much i know certain listeners certain friends of mine are really tired of hearing about it but i don't care because i find him endlessly fascinating yeah i mean especially in the hands of a 13 year old boy yeah what do you remember reading like which which one stands out tommy knockers tommy knockers knockers yeah needful things um I mean, there are things stick out in different ways. Like I remember the horror of misery, just like how in your face offensively uncomfortable it was to read misery. Um, But in terms of like being in a world like sexually charged world of intrigue, uh, Tommy knockers and needful things stand out for me. Tommy knockers is a, I think and I don't know if he's talked about this, but I'm certain it's true, is a big cocaine novel. Oh, really? I think, I mean, if you think about it, it's all about this other, this sort of like out-of-your-body force that gives you ideas and energy and takes you over and destroys you. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's I think it's his big coke book. Yeah, that makes <laughs> sense. Although if cocaine gave old ladies their periods, I think we'd be a lot more interested in it. Yeah, extend the menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. What was your Stephen King experience? Did you have the same thing or is it just whoever you talked to? No, it was the same for me. Um, I started reading him when I was probably too young. I think I read like things like The Shining and Christine really early. But as I've said before, my favorite Stephen King novel still is Pet Cemetery. Oh, yeah. Because of the unrelenting bleakness of it. Yeah. Catcher in the Rye is funny, too. I think I've I read it. I've never, I feel like I wish I'd read it when I was Holden Caulfield's age because I read it before I was his age. Yeah. And I was like, this is a worldview that I want to like inhabit. And then I read it when I was older than him and I was like, this kid is a little privileged bitch, little whiner. That kind of sucks. Yeah, same here. What was college like for you? Uh, 
just a, a prerequisite for being allowed to do anything with my life. Um, it was pretty meaningless. It was a box to check. I had very romantic expectations of it, you know, growing up in, in a, a house stacked with the classics. Um, I don't know, like I imagined it was going to feel like this enclosed space and this like romantic transition moment in my life. And it just wasn't that at all. I went to University of Minnesota for a couple of years where, you know, the most notable thing that happened is all the frat boys thought I looked like John Belushi and would scream Belushi at me when I was walking to, to class. Um, and then I, you know, got a girlfriend in Milwaukee, transferred back to Milwaukee just arbitrarily for that. And going to school became like a part-time job. Um, I took bowling because you could smoke cigarettes in class. I took woodworking, um, but ended up by completely demystifying it and taking all of that kind of cultural romance out of it, having a surprisingly engaged experience of it, where like I ended up in these postmodernism capstone seminars and uh, read and thought you know, in more challenging ways than I would have bothered with if I had stayed in the, like, the frat fantasy. Well, I wasn't in the frat fantasy, but, you know, the, the kind of, like, outsider looking into the dream of college in America. Uh, yeah. Stripping it of all that and just having it be like, this is where I go and I have to do it to get it over with uh, actually ended up making it much more interesting. It's interesting to me, too, that um, there's this, like, theme, at least in your earlier life up to a certain point that seems to come up where you felt like an outsider, right, in, in college like that. And then you've talked about and written about how when you first came to New York, you would stand outside bars and look into them longingly thinking, one day I'll have the guts to go in there. Yeah. I wonder where that comes from, that outsider feeling. I don't know, but it's it persists. I mean, it's it's not anything that I have ever chosen to put on, it's not a thing that I have ever enjoyed, but it has definitely stuck as a identity defining idea of myself. How do you I've, think, how do you think it relates to being a photographer, especially the kind of photographer that you are? I, it's, it's essential. It's, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, I notice looking back at how I spend my time and how my relationship with the world changes as I go that part of the deal part of like of the practice is you know functioning kind of as a ghost like looking at the world as if you're not part of it um looking at the world as if you're not implicated in it and kind of taking on this observer eye instead of a participant eye and uh I don't know. It's, it's essentially outsider. Um, and it's funny because obviously it has changed my life in a way that has gotten me a lot of attention. And theoretically you would think made me an insider. Uh, and while I do have great access and wonderful, interesting people in my extended life, um, you know, I'm still holed up in this little, Chinatown shoebox thinking that I have no, I mean, not thinking I have no friends. Like I pity me, 
but you know, I'm, I'm like my own thing, which yeah. if you want to psychologize, like I'm the oldest of six kids. Uh, and you know, by the time I was 11 or 12 years old, I was like, okay, there's not enough to go around here. Like my, my world is up to me. And I ended up having a lot of independence and a lot of kind of flexibility to make my own world when I was really young. Uh, and I don't know, I don't know what, what came first, but you know, that, that has kind of persisted through my life that I don't need much to entertain me. Like I'm, I'm easily attracted to the world without needing to be part of it. Yeah. Another, and that's, that's completely essential to the kind of work that you make. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, um, do you read about photography or have you read any writing about photography? Um, not ambitiously, but there is this recurring kind of magic trick thing where anytime I do end up reading something like usually, usually it'll be, I'll stumble on some snippet that somebody has posted somewhere or, you know, that's in some separate context. And it's like from, you know, Diane Arbus to Walt Whitman, like these people are speaking your own thoughts and not because you looked at them as a model for how to go through the world or achieve something that you wanted to do. But like, I came into it totally blind, totally ignorant, and just kind of let myself, let the city change me and follow my curiosity. And that my experience of reading about photography pretty consistently is like, this is so fucking trippy. Like there is just uh, some preordained path in your brain that gets all kinds of people across time, across interest, across personality to these very similar kind of, I mean, elevated thoughts. I think, I mean, elevated is scary, a scary word to say, but it does seem like uh, a higher engagement with the world that a lot of people find their way to through the same sort of practice. I think so too. I think that it might have to do with the fact that photography is all about observation. Yeah. Have you ever read, um, Camera Lucida by Roland Bart. No, it's a it's it's a great book about photography. And there was something in there. I was looking back at it um, last week, and there's something in there that reminded me of you. He refers to every subject as of a photo, every subject of a photo as um, as the target. And I wondered how that would resonate with you. Yeah, I think that works. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess target to me connotes like a one-on-one and I think that the target isn't necessarily an individual Um, and I think that there are also targets that kind of transcend going picture to picture like the target can be let's make something of this whole day let's make something of this experience or access to a certain place um but yeah i think that there there definitely is truth to you know what lately i think gets brought up as being problematic that there is this sort of i mean i'm scared to say predatory but it is you know 
there is a, a hunting kind of feeling about it. Um, even if it is, you know, vegetarian. <laughs> Have you ever been accused of being exploitative in your photography? Yeah, a lot. How does that how does that make you feel? Mm, you, you get used to it. Um, I think that well, actually, it's a really interesting kind of formative force to have in your life. And I see it in this time of of social media celebrity. You see it in the most caricatured ways that like anybody who stumbles into having a big spotlight on them will immediately start finding little proofs of virtue to mix into their presentation of themselves. Um, And I don't, you know, I don't do that necessarily, but I do think that, um, you know, the way I spend the day, there's a lot of time to think like the whole the whole search of the day is accompanied by just like running rambling inner monologue um and when you're doing something that has you know that's built in that's kind of questioned by the public uh there's a lot of rationalizing in that conversation there's a lot of like anticipating crit- criticism and addressing it um and so I think just by that being a concept in the world, the more time I put into taking pictures and looking at the world as if I wasn't part of it, the more this ethical code just kind of evolves into existence. And so without ever having particularly thoughtfully addressed it, you know, it being the criticism that I'm uh, exploitative, it definitely, it factors into my sort of self-policing inner monologue. And I think that also it was, I got it a lot when I was new. And I think that just the way things have kind of borne out and the, I don't know, the, the, just the breadth of what I've been able to pull into my little made up world. I don't know. I think that the the volume and the democracy of, of what ends up in the pictures when you have hundreds of thousands of them is, is like an automatic defense against exploitation. Like, if it's exploitative, it's exploitative of every single kind of person. Um, and, you know, in the way that everything is nothing and nothing is everything, I think it kind of just zeroes itself out. Totally, totally. It can be a very sort of judgmental thing on the person who's accusing you of being exploitative when they when you see who they think you're exploiting. Yeah. Does that well, make yeah. sense? Yeah. Definitely. And the more experience I have of that conversation, which still comes up because people will find me for the first time and like, you know, run through their their little checklist of, of, is this okay? The more I have that conversation and the more I, you know, wander around marinating and defensive thoughts that come from it, 
the more I, f- I feel, and I don't think this is a rationalization, I, I, but I think that that exploitation in a way is in the hands of the viewer. Like if, if something that I have done triggers that feeling in somebody, either A, they're looking at one photo and not considering the, the larger intent, or, you know, they're feeling like they're being exploited by looking at it. And, you know, I don't know if it's a problem to create opportunities for other people to feel exploitative. Uh, you know, take me to jail. But yeah, totally. I mean, it's like what you feel is exploitative can be sort of a hint at what you're actually prejudiced toward or against. Yeah. yeah. What makes you uncomfortable? And the reality is like, I don't know. Obviously, I don't get to be my own jury, but again, I feel like the amount of ground that I cover uh, just negates that that whole perception. Kind of related to this, do you have any sort of rules for yourself when you're photographing, whether they're in this realm or in strictly aesthetic or technical or functional realms? Do you have things that you're like, I don't take that kind of photo. I don't make that kind of photo. It's just kind of like a, an extrapolation of anybody's experience of being among people. Like you have a million little antennas, like what's okay to do, what's not okay to do. And rather than, I mean, I think it's actually a, a consequence of having spent this much time confronting those questions that like, I'm not sitting back and thinking like, what are the rules of the world? What's okay to do? I'm just kind of accumulating all of these precedents of experience where, you know, like I trust my own radar. I trust my, my own decency. Uh, and I am in a, a very regular habit of going and confronting it. And so, I don't know, this is a little rambly and vague, but, no, no, it's making sense. Yeah, I mean, without having, like, a code that I could recite to you, it's just, like, you you spend all of your time in a culture, and you, you know, whether you mean to or not, you are a product of it, and you find your place in its rules, and... Uh, you know, I, I don't want to ruin anybody's day in a way that has changed in 10 years of doing this super compulsively. Like I'm much more comfortable letting a thing go. Uh, You know, I'm not, I was never very aggressive, but I was definitely more aggressive. I was definitely more, uh, you know, like getting a shot or getting proof of something felt more important in the past. Um, but now it's more like this giant virtual encyclopedia in my head of all the things I've missed or all the times where I've accidentally stepped over one of my invisible lines. Um, you just, I don't know, you become this automatic engine of what you think is okay. Yeah. A code of ethics. I mean, everybody has one. It's just... Your, your, yeah. yours might be 
you're in you're in a line of work or a, a, you have a compulsion that might bring yours into question more frequently than sure. other people. For sure, but I think that the reality of it is, and even if there's no way of really quantifying it or proving it, because intentions obviously are only in my head, but I think it's made me much, much, much more ethical. Um, just because, like you, over time, you you form a real relationship with just the public, the world. Um, and there are places where. I don't know. I mean, again, I don't feel a need to communicate all my virtues, but it's just like places where you'd think there could be a problem, like a relationship with the homeless in New York. Right. You know, like my life adjusts in such a way that that's not me. I mean, first of all, I'm not going around taking glamour shots of homeless people but uh having that in my head you know i end up having these like sort of deep relationships with these people who are out in the world with me who i see every day um which is just a way i guess of kind of specifying that like being outside every day being among people in a crowded city every day makes you feel more kind of I don't know like respectful of the people around you because I've spent so much time you know kind of like imagining what makes them tick or what they're going to do next or whatever thing I don't know I got chased the other day by some tough guy because I took a picture of a homeless guy asleep on the sidewalk. He was, you know, call me a bad guy. He was asleep against my photo lab where I spend all of my money and, uh, you know, represents a kind of debilitating addiction in my life. And, you know, I wasn't, thinking like i'm gonna make this beautiful metaphor of myself or just like oh this is an interesting alignment of things and some guy chased me down the block was like dumbass dumbass you don't do that hey pink head pink head turn around was like filming me um and again that's the thing that makes you like you have to think like did am i doing wrong and while there's obviously plenty of legitimate arguments against you know, taking a picture of somebody who has no choice but to be outside. I also think that if I am, you know, creating or at some point presenting this document of my time in the world, am I supposed to pretend that there were no homeless people? Right. No, of course I mean, not. Like, I think about that in the same moment as the, the mayor saying homeless people can't be on the subway. Because we have to like cleanse our our view of them because we don't want to acknowledge our part in that problem, and you know, I don't want to pretend that they weren't there. Yeah, and so I don't know. That's a tough conversation that I I don't volunteer to have often, <laughs> um, but 
I don't know. I think if you're if you're photographing everybody and everything, you can't leave people out for some virtue that somebody else is uh, imposing on you. if there's just one, like your first favorite photographer when you were sort of starting to take photography seriously? Um, well, I don't know. It's interesting. Cause I came, I came at it pretty ignorant. And so early on, it was just kind of like what was around. And so as a, you know, 25 year old in New York doing media jobs. You know, although I had exposure to like Gary Winogrand, who you want to be the answer. Not me. I don't want that to be the answer. Well, I mean, it's just like, it makes sense. And it is, it, it's legitimate. Like I knew about Gary Winogrand was like, that's an exciting way of looking at the world. But right. more significantly, I mean, I was writing about music. I was, 25 in New York and it was Jason Nacito and Ryan McGinley. Mm. Um, and you know, I don't, th- you, I think you'd have to look long and hard to find any lasting aesthetic impact that those guys had on me. But like in a, in a time when I was kind of powerless in this overwhelming new place and trying to I don't know like find my way and and also document it as I went those two I think were a big a big part of like the early way of looking at the city because Jason was shooting everything for fader right and I was writing for fader um and Ryan you know it's just like once in a hundred years superstar guy whose aesthetic had kind of defined the young world um and so yeah i you know i hadn't that's not a canned answer like i have not said that before it's interesting to think about but but yeah those two i think were were really big for me in that moment and then also like you know corny young guy stuff like wes anderson oh yeah not a photographer but like that was such a such an intentional aesthetic that was new at the time and um made me think about you know other places in the frame to put the person you know basic aesthetic shit um and then there was also like a non-photographic force which was that again 25 right before the internet ruined music i thought going to shows and thinking about and writing about and experiencing music was like the most important thing in the world. And I was scared to go into the room. And so I would just bring a camera and go to shows by myself and stand in the front like a weirdo and take a million pictures. And I think that that forced a sort of visual development too, because, you know, I, the usual engines of, of evolution, you know, like dissatisfaction. I was bored with myself. I wanted to push it. And, uh, you know, that was a room where 
I could kind of do whatever I want and nobody would complain. Um, and so with Jason Nacito and Ryan McGinley in the back of my head, I would kind of just hang out in that room and try to figure out a camera. And um, I don't know. It's funny to think, because like the conversation always is like, who is the influence? What were you looking at? And the reality of it is not to feign any kind of purity. It was like my photographic identity, at least early on, didn't really have anything to do with photography. That's really interesting. You know, it was just a way to be in the room. It was like this nice friend that made dealing with the city a little bit less scary. The camera as a kind of armor. Yeah. And then also the, you know, the, the record as sort of proof of existence, proof of uh, viability. Look at all these things I did. Did you ever try to sort of self-consciously emulate or imitate Nacito's or McGinley's work? Yeah, in a way, I think. I mean, I, I ended up, I did a job with Jason once where Fader sent us both to this music festival in Big Sur. And he had me help him out on a few pictures. And I remember he had me like hold a bunch of shit, like branches in my hand in front of his lens, which was, you know, I never would have thought that would work. Right. Bunch of shit, bunch of shit in the way. But because of the way his, you know, he had his camera, you could kind of shoot through the stuff. And so for the longest time after that, I'd be like putting my hand in front of the camera or, and then, you know, Ryan is just like hanging out with be- with beautiful people in natural places. Like I had, you know, I was a young guy with young friends and we'd go upstate and be in a cornfield and be like, oh, this is one of those pictures. Time to get naked. Uh, yeah. Although I never was any good at getting people naked. But uh, it was just, again, similar to the music thing. It was just like a way to be comfortable and kind of purposeful in a situation where I felt, you know, a little estranged. Yeah, it makes total sense. So following from that, what are some of your favorite photo books? And I'm not looking for influences here. Just that's why I asked favorite, not influence. You know, it can be stuff or I I, I almost hope it's stuff that I don't, you know, it's not Vivian Meyer. It's not Gary Winogrand. It's not, you know, whichever street photographer you want to choose. So what, yeah. what, what are some photo books that are really essential to you? Well, I'm sorry to be a curmudgeon, but it feels worth talking about that. I mean, especially leading up to this book that I've made, I turned up the consumption of books, the collection of photo books. And I don't know, in th- in this moment of the photo making photo book making world, it almost feels kind of despicable and they feel so disposable to me and they feel so just like self-celebrating and self-aggrandizing. Like everybody's making fucking gatefold concept albums. <laughs> uh, which is fine. Like, I think it's, it's a fun thing to do. It's an interesting thing to make, but I don't know. I had this sort of surprising experience of buying more and more photo books and caring less and less about them. And, you know, things that I think of, like I have this giant 
MoMA retrospective Lee Friedlander book that is impossible to to digest as like a collection of pictures. It's everything. But I look through that book and it's like, uh, what's it's like the, uh, like the Sichuan peppercorn. Okay. Like I look through that book and then I flip through my own pictures and I can see them in a totally different way in a way that wears off. But like, he is so smart at how he fills a frame, such a technical mind. And so I look at, you know, I flip through that book and switch over and I can see, you know, formal lines over my slop and understand momentarily in new ways, like what works and why it's effective. And, uh, you know, on the rare occasion can aspire to do things a little bit more smartly. Yeah, I mean, do you, uh, because I think that I've heard you say before, or we've talked about maybe you not, uh, like shooting shooting volume maybe, rather than trying to like self-consciously frame a photo. Do you find yourself changing in that regard? Yeah, well, it's actually neither of those things. Like I don't, I don't, I'm a pretty conservative shooter. Like it takes me a long time to get through a roll of film. And I'm not like just laying on the the turbo button. Um, I mean, there's volume over time for sure. And, but you're also right that it's not, it's not like the first thought is not about composition or about photography even. Although it has become, I mean, to finally answer your question, there are things that have come along that I've noticed changing. Like, this is so stupid that it wasn't always this way. But like, I didn't, I didn't think about light. I wasn't trained as a photographer. I didn't know how a camera worked, which ends up being this great treasure now because I've been working for so long, so exhaustively. And there's still these, like the most obvious breakthroughs in the world. I'm like, I can start paying attention to light and all of a sudden I have a whole new world of potential pictures that open up to me and a new way of processing what's in front of me. And so, yeah, there, there are, there are ways that I notice it changing um, just through the great old magic trick of, of being bored of myself. How do you approach assigned work differently from your personal work? Like how, how does it feel to shoot a portrait Oh God, so scary. Is it? Yeah, portraits are uh people who can just like put someone on a stool in front of a piece of white paper and make an interesting picture. Uh that's a whole different thing and it always amazes me. Um I you know, as usual to take a bit of a side road into it, I really value what having become a professional photographer has done for my brain because I mean there are assignments where it's very much my my wheelhouse I got sent there because it's like quirky and energetic and dense and I can go and just be a little goblin and capture it all but for something more formal something out of my comfort zone you know there's a Forgive me, I've said it 
a hundred times before, but um, it's just, it's this shortcut to my automatic brain. And in a way that, like what I was talking about before about COVID, how you're presented with something and suddenly all of your endless meandering reveals itself to have been practice for something that requires more of you. You know, like I get put in a room where I'm scared where I'm intimidated. Like I have to take a portrait of God forbid a famous person and my brain, my like controlled intellectual having ideas brain is just totally unavailable to me. But I'm so in the practice of doing the thing of like knowing where to put the camera and when to push the button and put myself outside of the world and pay attention in a way that, um, I don't know. It's this, this amazing secondary kind of work that I noticed looking back and I'm so excited about where like in a fast forwarded way that parallels walking so much in a day that I can't think or put a sentence together. You know, it's, I can get to that mindlessness instantly because I'm freaked out. And then I end up having all this proof of, of like what my brain did when I wasn't in charge of it. And so because I've told that romantic story of myself so many times, I've gotten to a place now where although I stay uncomfortable and nervous and feeling unworthy, I trust that brain to do something interesting. So I will put myself in the most daunting of professional situation, totally over my head with no preparation, you know, half the time without batteries or whatever essential thing that I need and let everything go wrong. And, and not as a game plan, but it's just like, it's become comfortable to be that uncomfortable. Um, and so, I mean, I guess that's a very long way of saying I don't really adjust for assigned work if anything i do less uh and just let the problem kind of take over and find my way through solving it like i don't i don't know i guess there are certain technical tricks but i don't even know what they are like there i know better how to use a camera so like i can solve that problem in smarter prettier ways than i used to be able to but I don't know. It just always feels like a stressful emergency that I, you know, I find out how it went two days later when I get the film back. What's the portrait that you shot that you, that you remember feeling particularly stressed out about? I mean, this isn't a, a, a notable one, but it was just embarrassing. I did a, a New York times portrait of um, the broad city girls, Abby and, Abby uh, and Alana. Yeah, Abby and Alana from Broad City. And, you know, we had significant friends in common. So I felt like this would be cool. We'll be on the level. We'll make friends. I get there. And we're all just like paralyzingly awkward. And on top of that, you know, I'm imagining we'll have some like loose hour to kind of find our way into it. And it turns out I have like nine minutes 
and we're in fucking Dumbo. So I'm like, all right, let's go to the stupid merry-go-round. What else am I going to do for nine minutes? And so we go to, we go to the goddamn merry-go-round and they're on horses next to each other. And without any provocation for me, they lean in and kiss. And I'm like, oh God, yeah, genius. Thank you. Great idea. But instead what happens when I go to do that is I blow a giant snot bubble out of my nose. Uh, and just like, just <laughs> any chance of composure or, you know, cool guyness, uh-huh. composition of any kind, it's just out the window and I just have to survive it. And this thing where I was expecting like a pleasant little, you know, almost a reunion feeling. Right. Uh, it's just nothing goes right. Okay. Now let's talk about books. Okay. When I ask you to tell me a novel that you really love, what comes to mind first? Um, it's so funny. The last time I really got taken away by a thing, it was Wind Up Bird Chronicle. Uh, Murakami. Yeah. Which, you know, it's another artifact of of being like a lonely 24-year-old in New York. My first job was shelving books at the Strand. And they were paying me like, you know, two bucks under minimum wage. So I'd pay myself with books. And uh, that was the one from that era that held my attention long enough to to really take me away. What happens in that book? I can't remember if I've read it. It's like, you know, uh, what do they call it? The fantastical. Like magical realism? Yeah, magical realism. Uh, You know, some guy loses his cat, develops a blue freckle, (laughs) meets young women around town. Uh, And in the meantime, you get this sort of working history of Japan. Uh, You know, it's this big, epic, multi-purpose fantasy novel that actually teaches you a thing or two. Um, But, you know, I don't remember any of it now. Yeah. It just feels like this landmark before my brain got totally fucked by the phone. How addicted are you? You, you, That's the second time you've referenced that. Uh, It's bad. I mean, not in a way that I lament throughout the day or that I notice being a problem. It's. I mean, really, it, it, it comes up most when I think about what I have lost by not really being a reader anymore. Yeah. What's your, what's like your main behavior on the phone? Like, what do you do? You read anything on the phone? Yeah. I mean, like news. Um, but that's, that's about it. Other than that, my behavior on the phone is, you know, I look at stupid Instagram, social media. And also it's very demanding of me with, communication and i don't know there's just always a thing that is being demanded of me by the phone yeah which is i mean like it makes me feel guilty and sad when i still have to say why the bird chronicle because it was the last time when you know before the internet corrupted everything 
I think of also uh, a random little book, Larry McMurtry, All My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers. I haven't read that. I like him a lot. I've read Lonesome Dove. Yeah, I bought it during quarantine. Okay. I read a few pages, a couple <laughs> pages. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I wonder if I can show you without disrupting things terribly. Yeah, sure. Buried and that's a lot of books. Yeah. Piles and piles in every direction. So for our listeners who aren't getting the visual on this, Daniel is panning his laptop around his apartment and there there are a lot of books. Yeah, like every surface is piled up with books. There's a I always forget it, but there's a Japanese word for this for somebody who acquires books but doesn't read them. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm constantly trying to decode it and and cure myself of I don't know whatever the problem is, and I have recently been equating it with again this this technology shift where we went from all media being sort of you know in a way obscure. Like you had to really seek things out and and make an effort to get them. And then all of a sudden, information is so accessible. Everything's at your fingertips. You can have everything. And, you know, I behave like somebody who's been at a fancy restaurant that suddenly became an all-you-can-eat buffet. Right. Having access to all the information makes you value it less. Yeah, but also, like, I want all of it. Okay. So like fill my pockets. So, you know, one day when my attention span returns or when, you know, I'm crippled in bed, I'll have every book that I was interested in for the past 20 years. And finally I can settle down with all of them and Uh do them justice. What's a book that uh, made you cry? The Stranger. By Camus. Yeah. Why? The Stranger was my answer before Wind Up Bird Chronicle. Uh, the Stranger, reading that book made me physically uncomfortable. Like it made me feel sick in my stomach mm. uh, and made me cry. But a lot of books have made me cry. I remember the first time it was either, I think it was Good Night, Mr. Tom <laughs> or, Brit, or Bridge to Terabithia, some like assigned middle school reading. Yeah. Um, this is funny. I've never thought about this, but it coincided with seeing Dead Poet Society. Okay. And having this sort of new comfort and almost pride about being moved to tears. Or like I had had previous previous experiences, which I also remember very vividly, uh-huh. where Pollyanna, of all things, was on TV in my childhood kitchen. And, you know, whatever tragedy happens in Pollyanna, I don't even remember. She, like, falls off the roof and breaks her legs or something. I was moved to tears by that, and I was so ashamed that I, like, ran out of the room and nobody knew. And then also the first time I watched The Last Waltz. Oh, wow. When Neil Young comes out and says, like, I just want to say it's one of the great privileges of my young life to be on, you know, whatever the hell he says. That, too, I was like, what the fuck are these feelings? And, again, had to run away and hide. Um but somehow in that middle school time of, of Good Night, Mr. Tom, Bridge to Terabithia, and Dead Poet Society, 
uh, I switched over to being like, you know what? I think it's cool if this makes me cry. When when's the last time you cried? I don't know. It happens to me all the time. Interesting. It's not like full blown crying. I'm just like moved to choke up by seeing something on the street or reading something or I don't know. I mean, I also come from a house where my mother was pregnant for my whole childhood and would cry at all the commercials. Um, so it's sort of baked in, in a way. But but yeah, I'm a cheap, a cheap cry. What about a book that um, made you laugh? Dennis Johnson makes me laugh. Oh, wow. Because he makes me cry. Yeah, well, he makes you cry too. But I don't know. There's something about the... His the confidence of his noticing, like the way he describes people. Mm. Uh, he has made me laugh. Oh, he is very funny. Yeah. What's your favorite book by Dennis Johnson? Jesus's Son is the one I know the best. Um, I have one. I had one on my desk that I was picking away at. That uh, the largest of the sea is that what it's called? The largest of the sea maiden. It's some new yeah, one. That's that final short story collection. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's what I'm thinking of too. Where he's he's like he's introducing you to the population of of the jail that he's in. Just the way that he characterizes these people. Oh, you know who made me r- easy answer again? But 10th of December, uh, George Saunders made me laugh my ass off. So funny. He kind of goes for the laugh so much sometimes that I feel a little bit cheap when I laugh at him. Whereas, yeah, yeah, yeah. whereas Johnson earns it in a different way. For sure. Although I feel like I don't laugh as much at George Saunders' jokes. It's more just like the commitment to the bit. Yeah. I'm like, this fucking guy. I get that. <laughs> really going for it with this, this whole conceit. Have you ever used a book as a tool for courtship? Oh, I must have. Do you do you share books with your partner now? Yeah, sort of. I mean, we share the same space. So, I mean, she doesn't live here, but we spend enough time here that our our collections of things overlap. And so whatever she's poking around at, I'll end up poking around at too. But what have I used? I feel like I gave away multiple copies of... Um, Wells Tower, everything ravaged, everything burned. Oh wow, I I remember that. It's a pretty gnarly collection. Yeah, it's got the blood eagle in it. Uh huh. The Viking, the Viking Actually, torture method. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And that was that was a sort of romantic gesture. Well, the blood eagle story ends up being incredibly romantic. I don't remember it. The the conclusion that he comes to is that like he notices that his old friends who he used to go plundering with, like he can't even get them to have a conversation anymore because of the fear that comes over them when they get a hold of something that they can't afford to lose. And that love becomes this like crippling, isolating thing. Um, I guess maybe that's not exactly romantic, but love related. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Odd choice, but I guess it, it ends up being more about that feeling that pre-internet feeling of discovery where like Wells Tower isn't a thing that's every an everyday person who's not looking is necessarily going to stumble across. And I can say like, look at this weird, like funky smelling 
dark place that I found. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, go there and report back to me. <laughs> um, what else have I given away? I think I've given away Wind Up Bird Chronicle, too. I think that that is... Um... Murakami is is considered very romantic by a lot of people. Yeah, for sure. Very romantic. I've been courted with books. Oh, yeah? Like what? Like obvious stuff. Lunch poems, Pablo Neruda, mm-hmm. uh, T.S. Eliot's horny poems. Or is it E. Cummings? E. Cummings, e. Cummings is, corny, is corny. Yeah. yeah. But also secretly kind of a guilty pleasure for me. Yeah, yeah. He's so good at being horny. Yeah. So an eloquent hornball. If anybody gave me a copy of Lunch Poems, I might consider marrying them. Yeah, it's a pretty good move. Yeah, that's Frank O'Hara's Lunch Poems for people who don't know. Very romantic. I was going to ask you about poetry, actually. Do you read poetry? Not ambitiously, but given my attention problem, it is very nice how self-contained and small it is. And I I do, uh, I also, I don't know, the the kind of like, boldness and experimental feeling of of the language kind of resonates with me too yeah like you're it's it's more of a short game like a sprint and i like the kind of more muscular way of the language who's a poet that you like what have i read that i liked recently who is it that wrote the uh bluets the bluets are by maggie nelson yeah, Maggie Nelson. I like Maggie Nelson. Yeah. I yeah. like uh, Mary Oliver. Yeah. I like... Um, female poets. Yeah, I like female poets. I like, I mean, I like Allen Ginsberg. I'm surprised by what sway Allen Ginsberg has over me. <laughs> Talk about uh, that a little bit. Like, how, how do you mean? Sway over you. I I just... I don't know. I just have such a soft spot for his, his approach to everything. He's just such a, a shameless raw nerve. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know, such an indulger in the, the romance of that, that cultural moment that we're all still kind of coasting on. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. He lets you smell the room. I think. Yeah, I, better than a lot of other people. He's somebody who I I like how sort of shamelessly self-promoting he was as well. Like it it worked for him for some reason. Yeah, he pulled it off. Yeah. But there's a I was just watching uh I forget why a, a Janis Joplin performance. Okay. And I think of it because she's so impressive. She's so uh, just like all out. But she's also doing a thing that once she did it, nobody else could ever do it again. It would look like imitation. Yeah, or just like, it's just embarrassing. Mm. Like even her, even she doesn't completely survive the creation of like whatever she tapped into. Um, And I feel like Ginsburg is the same way because it was so pure like it's i don't know obviously those they're both imitating something someone but they hit it so hard and in such the right moment that it's like the last time anybody could get away with it 
Yeah, they took their. I think they took their influences and expanded on them. Like you know, you would say yeah, Ginsburg well, took like Blake and Whitman and then made it a completely different thing. Yeah, Joplin. I don't know. I've always had a problem with Janis Joplin. Well, I mean, that's fair. <laughs> maybe it's because of what you're talking about—the over-the-topness. Maybe, maybe it reads as too performative to me, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's not something that I like seek out or crave to hear. But anytime I end up in front of it, like, God damn. Yeah. She really did the thing to death. Yeah. Day one did it to death and then died and then it was done forever. <laughs> it's a good legacy to leave. Yeah. What about nonfiction? Oh, what nonfiction have I read lately? I mean, the first, I, I can only think of like the most pedestrian things like um, Down and Out in Paris and London. Yeah, George Orwell. Um. And then same vein, uh, Movable Feast. Mm-hmm. Movable Feast was a big one for me as like, again, I keep coming back to this moment, but like new in New York, kind of circumstantially assembling your community and reading that with no context and no information and just feeling like you could write an anthology of everyone you know, and even if they were nobodies, if you told it right, it could make your life seem like this masterpiece. Yeah. There's a photography corollary to that, too. Yeah. Totally. Had not thought of that, but definitely. And a faster one. Yeah. More immediate. Yeah. What other nonfiction? It's so nice to be put through these paces. I like. Please Kill Me was another one like that. That's a big one for people who are kind of like becoming New Yorkers, I think. Yeah. Well, and also that same phenomenon of like, if you could tell the story of your people juicily enough. Yeah. Like you could just write your own myth. For those who might not know, we should, I guess we should say that Please Kill Me is an oral history of like the early days of punk, mostly in New York, but there's some Detroit and LA stuff in there too. Yeah. And it, I mean, I had this, this daydream that I would, I don't know, I was going to like make one of those anthologies. Mm -hmm. I had this picture in my head that I'd like put all of my kind of extended communities names in a hat. This is like 15 years ago at this point. And everybody would pick a name and then everybody would write sort of like an anecdotal a very anecdotal account of who that person was. And it would be a whole collection where we were all telling each other stories, but like, you know, one time he shit his pants. That's a good idea. And then like, not, not make any fanfare about it. Just like put it together so that it exists and then just like leave it. Yeah. In the world and wait for it to become true. Uh huh. That could be a good issue of a magazine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it might be a lot to ask for somebody to be interested in. Although, that'd be cool if you could if it could be like multiple little microcosms, like people introducing you to their yeah. their world of, of meaningful acquaintances. I always wanted to do an issue of Vice where I just pick five New Yorkers at random from different walks of life and follow them around for a day and just report on their day. That'd be so fun. I love that idea. Yeah. Remember when... Um... You and I were stalking Machiku Kakatani. Yeah, I knew where you were going. <laughs> yep. 
Never found her. No. For those who don't know, um, Machiko Kakutani, I think I'm saying her name right. I don't remember. Yeah. Was a book critic for the New York Times for a long time. She was famously kind of harsh and judgmental. She used the word liminal a lot or or <laughs> limbed. Um, and I was trying to, I, I asked Daniel for Apology, my magazine, to go out and find her and photograph her sort of paparazzi style because nobody really knows what she looks like. There's like one photo from the 80s. So you did. You like got to her. You found out where she lived, didn't you? Yeah. How did you do that? But I never found her. I don't know. I don't remember how I figured out where she lived. Looking back, was that problematic of us to be doing that? I definitely had the thought while pursuing that idea that like maybe I was, you know, poking a bear that I didn't want to poke. Yeah. To me, it was kind of like trying to photograph Thomas Pynchon or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but I think if I remember right, it was before I had ever worked for the New York Times and I wanted to work for the New York Times. Uh-huh. And I was like, is this gonna is this gonna alienate? Is this gonna make that that less likely? Am I gonna like make enemies of the New York Times? Yeah, yeah. But it didn't stop me. I just couldn't find her. You know, I wanted to ask you about your problems with Instagram. Yeah. Being shadow banned. First of all, what exactly does shadow ban mean? I'm not totally sure. The only concrete thing that I know is that they make it so that a person has to type in your full name before it acknowledges that you exist. Wow. And why why would they have done this to you? I posted a picture on International Women's Day uh-huh. of my friend giving birth in a bathtub. Yeah. And they're, you know, like 24% of her nipples visible. Um, and I took it down. But it was removed from my archive. Uh, and I guess you can't even have semi-nudity in your archive or they take it down and punish you. Just for one transgression. Yeah. Well, you know, there's been plenty over the years, but I think that they end up forgiving you if there's like enough time between transgressions. I'd think that if they were a smart company, they would realize who the people are who are making Instagram, you know, what it is and why it's valuable. And you're somebody who elevated Instagram. I know. You know, I mean, I've always felt that they have no idea what the value of what they have. But, you know, they don't care about what I care about. They want to make money. In the annotations in Pickpocket, there are a lot of references to, like, going through dark times or have, feeling sad or having a mental health crisis, you know, yeah. at various times. Like, how how's your mental health right now? I think it's pretty good. I mean, I think... I don't know. It's a hard thing to explain that that kind of depth of yourself but for one thing i don't know i've learned i have a, a sober girlfriend in the program sober and my my mother is like lifelong 12 stepper i won't tell you her last name to maintain her anonymity sure but um it's it's very interesting to to find in my first real kind of in-depth exposure to 
12-step world, that that is just like the language of my mind. Interesting. Like I was, I was raised on the steps. I mean, not, not specifically like making amends or anything, but just that, that way of coping, um, that way of, of maintaining balance despite the chaos of the world has kind of come naturally to me. And then also I think it's, it's a function of being an observer. Um, at least for me, it, it gives me like, I have easy access to this, this kind of trick of distance from myself. Yeah. Yeah. We kind of talked about that earlier. Yeah. And so like, I, you know, I have intense feelings for sure, but I, you know, I have a lot of practice standing outside of them and looking at them and thinking about them. Um, and also, you know, the, the really compulsive chapter of the photography that, that, you know, continues to this day started in a time of really intense, overwhelming emotional turmoil. Um, and it, it was like a direct, it was like medication. Mm. With this, you know, the way that meditation does for people, uh, it, it took me outside of it and uh, gave me something productive and purposeful to do with overwhelming feelings um, in a way that I, I eventually noticed enough that it became sort of part of the process where like if I'm feeling really imbalanced or really just like altered different from my baseline. Yeah. My instinct now is like, okay, this is, this is like a curveball ingredient in your view of the world, your point of view and take it outside and go and make proof of what your fucked up brain does. And maybe it's nothing, maybe it's boring, but uh, it does end up being a fairly good, kind of combatant of chaos. So are the photos as well as being like, are they like an escape from, from that kind of stuff? Or are they also like, do the photos have a reflection of your, of yourself in them? Cause there's so much about other people in other places. Are you, are you in them? Well, I'm in them in a way that doesn't matter to anybody, but me, I think. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, there's that like, since we're talking books, it's like a, are, a hor- are we though? <laughs> it's like a, a, a horcrux. Okay. It's like, yes. Uh, I mean, in a way that I, I, I noticed looking back, like if I have to go through picture by picture, you know, photos from 10 years ago, it doesn't happen every time, but it's like, it's like smell memory. Like there are pictures that I'll see and I'm immediately thrown back into the state of mind. Even if it has nothing to do with the picture, I just like, I'll end up mad at some ex-girlfriend or, Mm. you know, feeling bad about something that I haven't felt bad about in 10 years because it, it is such a, because it's so solitary. It really, the, the photos really do get infused at least for me with, 
whatever is going on in my head. And so that ends up being, you know, another, another function, another standalone value for me of doing the work that's kind of uh, impervious to competition or Mm -hmm. corniness or whatever. It's like, it's worth, it's worth making these personal fossils that have, you know, that are like a, a portal back to however I felt when I was making them. Yeah. It's not always the case, but it's, it's just a nice thing to, so like a nice little magic trick to to fall back on to to have that possibility that you could be making yourself these breadcrumbs leading back to big moment big emotional moments in your life. Yeah, and it's also kind of fascinating to me that they aren't you know, it's not a photo of the person you're thinking of or yeah, you know. Yeah, it's got nothing to do with it. Yeah. I just remember how it felt taking the picture. I wonder how many people are going to get that Horcrux reference. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's a pretty hoity-toity crowd. Yeah. I'm going to leave it out there and make people do their own work on that one. Yeah. There's a reference in the book to being in court, being cleared of a felony. And I, <laughs> yeah, I, but it's not explained. So I really want to know, I got to know what that is. Yeah. I had a bad day. <laughs> I had a bad, a bad summer. I, um, I got arrested in times square because I was I was accused of upskirting a child. Oh wow. Yeah. It was like a summer Friday beautiful Times Square afternoon and I was just trying to get to the end of a roll of film because I had been uh I had been assisting and my boss did portraits of Mario Testino mm-hmm. which was such a weird discordant mismatch that I thought it was hilarious and I wanted these pictures as soon as possible. So I was just trying to finish my role of film and, you know, walking slow-mo in circles in times square. And there was this little kid who was trying to stomp on a pigeon. Oh God. And it was like some rusty old times square pigeon. So it like, didn't really care. Yeah. It would just kind of flutter up and land five feet ahead and she go try to stomp it again. So I tried to take a picture of the the pigeon like fluttered up in front of her. I thought maybe it would like cover her face and be a miracle picture. Yeah. And I completely blew it. Like there was no chance I got anything good. But it was like I a little point and shoot, like a little Yashika T4 with a flash on. It's like no attempt at being discreet at all. Right. To the point that I I attempted it, knew that I had failed, looked her parents in the eye. And kind of like shrugged and was like, oh, oh, well. (laughs) And kept going. And then like 15 minutes later, I get grabbed from behind by a bunch of cops. No clue what's going on. Like to the point that I thought they were just like goofing around. Right. Like a little friendly cop horseplay. (laughs) Oh, like, you know what you did. No, I don't know it. So whatever. I I mean, I could make it a very long, dramatic story. um, But the, the... the highlights are that they put me in that little fish tank holding cell in the middle of Times Square and brought the family around to ID me in the window. And I look at them and not one of them is wearing a skirt, first of all. Oh, that's funny. And I'm like, you guys, respectfully, how can you, how can you be accusing me of taking an upskirt when there's no skirt? (laughs) None of these, like, there's no possibility that I could have done anything bad. They're like, you know what? We didn't see it. So 
doesn't matter. We got to talk to the family. Like nobody wants to talk to me. They just want to talk to the family and the family, you know, God bless them. Looked like they were just off the plane from North Dakota. Mm. And I'm sure they thought Times Square was a cesspool of criminals and they were like doing their duty and getting one off the street. And, you know, obviously I'm not saying some weirdo taking a picture of your kid is above questioning. Like, yeah, it's a fine thing to question. I wish they had questioned me. Um, but anyways, I go, you know, they lock me up. Uh, I spend the night in jail. And the next day, when I finally end up in front of the judge, they read the charges, which, you know, up till now have been like, you know, we didn't see anything. So we got to talk to the family. The charges are now that the cops have observed me shooting up the skirt of a child, two 18-year-old girls and several other women in Times Square. Wow. Like, just absurdity. Like, you know, like I'm a cockroach. Uh, they've just invented this this plot, and I'm I'm like, oh god, they're. Go-. I mean, already sitting in that cell, I'm like, nobody's gonna understand. Yeah. Like as reasonable as that story is, if people want to feel like they got a bad guy, like my story doesn't matter. Right. Right. And so they they charge me with uh, unlawful surveillance, which is a felony. And I am on my way. I think it was June 30th. And so they're uh, intending to put me at Rikers to await a hearing. Fourth of July is coming up. Yeah, Fourth of July. So, you know, it's probably a good 10 days before I get a hearing. Thank God my cousin bailed me out. Last second. Uh came up with i think it was like five grand in cash jesus crazy yeah which was also absurd because like i've never done i've never had a problem in my life like there's no flight risk there's although the the lawyer the the public defender guy who who got my case finished with words that will ring in my head forever he was like your honor this is just what he does he does this every single day (laughs) like god come on yeah like a week later the cops came and arrested me in my bedroom at six in the morning because when my cousin paid my bail, they forgot to take my, my hearing date out of the system. Cause they give you a, a hearing like months in the future. So they, you know, I registered as, as having skipped bail and they came and collected me and drove me around town all day in a paddy wagon and humiliated me and re-traumatized me. I mean, not, you know, now it all feels like it was nothing, but it did in the moment really, kind of shatter my perception of i mean at least the police uh crazy that a person needs that kind of run in to start to think critically about the police i'm embarrassed that that's the case but it really did it was a a big perspective shift um but yeah eventually they just you know the da came back from the hamptons and developed my film and they're like oh oops this is never mind. He, this is what he does all day, but not in the way yeah. that we, yeah. 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 Oh, this is fine. He didn't do anything. They, you know, I had like a 30-second follow-up hearing and they expunged it and it was nothing. Um, but really, really messed me up for a for a bit. It's terrifying. It's Kafkaesque to use a cliche. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say it too, but I felt like uh, <laughs> I couldn't throw that one around after I said I can't read a book. <laughs> You're not qualified. 
Yeah. Um, although I did read Metamorphosis, for the record. Thanks, Daniel, for your time and generosity. You all probably already know this, but he is Arnold underscore Daniel on Instagram. And if you're interested in street photography and you haven't seen it yet, I recommend the film Everybody's Street by the director Cheryl Dunn. As far as I know, it's up on YouTube in its entirety, um, and it's a great intro to the whole deal. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe to it, like it, etc., all that stuff. If you're feeling particularly altruistic, please feel free to write a review. Even a brief one helps. You can find more Apology stuff at ApologyMagazine.com. This episode was recorded between my home in Los Angeles and Daniel's in New York. It was post-produced and edited by Justin Geller, temporarily stationed in Nashville, and facilitated by Lars Kreslins in Philadelphia. The music is Bach, arranged and performed by Cyrus Germani in Los Angeles. Thanks a lot. See you next time.